Well, I want to read from you uh, an episode in the life of Jesus from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. That'll be uh, projected there, but if you want a moment to look that up in your, your own Bible, you can have that uh, time to do that, or just to have a moment to prepare to receive God's Word. Mark 14, starting at verse 1. From God's word we read, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of, of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. You know, I think it's been quite a few years since I just preached a sermon that was meant to really just tie into Thanksgiving instead of whatever fall series or other project I was working through. So I decided to do that as best I could with a biblical text that didn't lead in all the same directions I thought it might, but we, we connected anyway. And so we're going to start right with that text and get into this event in, uh, in Jesus's life in Mark's gospel. Although it's not just in Mark's gospel, this must be a pretty important passage for us to know about because all four gospel authors included in their books. And also because that Jesus says this, the story of the perfume-pouring woman will be told wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world. That, that sounds important. And I don't think I've preached on this passage before either, so it's, it's high time that that happened. And the setting here is the town of Bethany. That's where Jesus' close friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And Bethany was about the closest to a home base that Jesus had as a wandering teacher. It was this place he could find hospitality and rest. And it was also quite close to Jerusalem, where those chief priests and teachers of the law were plotting against Jesus. And they were soon going to get their opportunity to do what they wanted to do, because Jesus would enter Jerusalem in a dramatic fashion. He would leave himself vulnerable to being arrested and tried and crucified all to fulfill his mission of overcoming the power of sin and death. But before all that, Jesus had dinner with his disciples and friends in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. And Simon is not mentioned elsewhere, so we just kind of figure that he's somebody that Jesus healed at some point. Um, If he were currently a leper, probably people would not be filling his house for a dinner party, so we just sort of guess that that's his history. But during that dinner... A woman came up to Jesus with this jar of very expensive perfume. And 
the nard that she had brought with her was hard to come by. It was imported all the way from India. And she broke the narrow neck of that jar and she unsealed it and she poured the whole contents onto Jesus' head. And so this was an act of extravagance. As a way of showing love and honor to Jesus, it went far beyond what anyone would expect or even understand. Because, you know, nobody bats an eye if you meet up with some friends and bring a box of donuts, right? And it's not that weird for someone to show up at her friend's house and say, oh, I know you really love that sweater I found at Sweaters R Us, and so I've got you one too. Isn't that great? You know, but it's a whole other thing if someone walks up to you at a party and says, oh, I just, I just so appreciate you and value you that I've decided to give you my Lamborghini. Right? That would, that, that, that'd be bonkers. That would be so out of scale for what's normal. And that analogy still doesn't capture how wild this is, because at least the Lamborghini still exists after the party's over, right? This, this rare perfume was gone for good after being poured out. And so it's not strange to be taken aback at that. Certainly, the people at Simon's house were, were taken aback at that, particularly Jesus' disciples. They weren't happy. They said, why this waste? They tore into this woman for dumping out what was worth a year's wages. A year's wages gone in a minute. And they said, oh, it could have been sold and given to the poor. And there's no way to know how many of them really wished that money had gone to the poor and how many were thinking more about what that money could perhaps have done for them. But either way, they were not impressed. And I can easily imagine them muttering about her being this, this foolish woman who just doesn't understand what she's doing. I mean, that's why women aren't in charge, right? They're too emotional. But Jesus does not stand for this. And he tells them to leave her alone, to stop scolding her, because they are the ones who don't understand. She has done a beautiful thing for me, he says. And that word that Jesus uses for beautiful, it means a little bit more than nice. It also means morally or ethically good. And we'll come back to why that is. Although first, really do need to dispense with Jesus' next statement, because it's sometimes misused or tragically misunderstood. He says, the poor you will always have with you. And there are people who cut it off right there, as if that was the whole sentence, as a way of kind of downplaying the importance of charity or justice for the poor. So, well, what does it really matter if we do something to help or if we give the poor this or whatever? There will always be poor people. Jesus said so. And it really takes quite a lot of ignorance, either willful or otherwise, to use his words in that way. But people do it. The whole sentence is, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. And <clears throat> what's implied here, and what's taught by Jesus on many other occasions, and what's expressed over and over again in the Old Testament, is that God expects that you will, in fact, help the poor and marginalized if you have any regard for him at all. In fact, it's very likely Jesus is really just referencing Deuteronomy 15.11 here, which says, There will always be poor in the land, so I'm commanding you to freely give to those who are poor and needy in your land. Open your hands to them. All right, that's just, just important to get that, get that over with. But uh, back to Jesus, why, about why Jesus thought that anointing him with oil was this good and beautiful thing that was worth a year's wages uh, in, through this oil. And the main reason, first of all, that Jesus says is, look, the opportunities for those who love Jesus to do something for him, to, uh, to have an intimate time with him is running out. There's only going to be a few chances left to do something for Jesus in his presence, his physical presence at least. But Jesus saw a deeper, <clears throat> a deeper aspect to this act as well. 
Because he says, she did what she could, or what, all that she could is a different way of phrasing it. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Therefore, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus has a good idea of what's going to happen soon. It's going to be arrested. There'll be a, a show trial. He'll be put to death. That is a, a scary thing to be facing. Even though Jesus deliberately provoked these events, he didn't want to have to endure all this. And I think everyone has felt dread at doing something they really didn't want to do somewhere along the way, right? The kind that makes it hard to eat or hard to sleep or hard to enjoy anything. But how bad was your thing compared to what Jesus was about to do? Right? Jesus was fully human, and so he felt this, much like you or I would feel this. And I imagine that his close communion with God helped him endure it better than you or I might, but Jesus was still dreading what would come next. And then along comes this woman, this woman who could not have offered any more to Jesus at that moment. You know, not just the expense, but her, her, full, her full devotion, her whole self. And so at enormous expense and at terrible risk of ridicule, she came to Jesus to express her love and her gratitude. And she anointed him with oil prior to his death rather than an anointing which would normally be done to a body afterward. She ministered to Jesus with everything she had. And when I think about the Easter story, this is just about the only you know, person, this woman is about the only one who did something that helped Jesus through it. I mean, what did the disciples do? They jockeyed for position at the Last Supper and they fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked them to wait and keep watch while he prayed. And then they denied knowing Jesus and, and scattered and ran away for the most part. Jesus went through most of this ordeal alone. <clears throat> and maybe that helps to show why Jesus was so grateful for this act, why he felt that an extravagant gesture might be worth it, and why he claimed that what she'd done should be remembered. And I think one question that's hard to answer is whether the woman understood all this. And I can only say maybe to that question. In the version of these events in John's gospel, he names the woman as Mary, as the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And at and this dinner at, Lazarus, or at Simon's house, it happens not long after Lazarus had died and then been raised from the dead by Jesus. And not only had Jesus done this miracle to give her brother back to her, but Mary and Jesus shared a moment of grief over Lazarus' death that was deeply meaningful to her as well. Because Jesus called for her when he arrived at Bethany after Lazarus' death. He said, come out to, to see him, to talk to him. And Mary fell at Jesus' feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she started to weep. And Jesus said, hey, stop crying. I'm going to raise your brother from the dead anyway, so it's not a big deal. No, Jesus asked where they had laid Lazarus to rest, and he joined Mary and the other mourners there, and then he wept as well. He joined Mary in her grief. And I suspect that anointing Jesus with oil was Mary joining Jesus in his grief over what was coming. So it makes a fair amount of sense that Mary would be the one to go all in for Jesus in this moment. Because it took Jesus' resurrection for most of his disciples to really understand who Jesus was. But after her brother's resurrection by Jesus, I think Mary maybe got it a little bit earlier than that. That Jesus was the Messiah sent to make a way for everyone to have eternal life by faith. 
Lazarus was the preview and Jesus was the main event on Easter Sunday, but everyone else would follow. And so that kind of belief produces gratitude, right? That God loved you enough to send his son into the world to pay the price to redeem you, to give you a new life that will never end. Well, there can't be a gift greater than that. You get a new life with God's presence to help and guide you in the remaining years on earth, and then a perfected and resurrected life in the very perfect presence of God in the world to come. I mean, you cannot believe that that is true and not be thankful. And so Mary has her brother returned to life by Jesus. She has the privilege of knowing and learning from Jesus. She understands and believes him to be the Messiah who is the resurrection and the life. And I think maybe she has a better grasp of what's going to happen next than some of his other disciples do. And so her gratitude moves her to this extravagant gift to Jesus, creating this beautiful moment for him as he prepares to walk this scary and lonely path to his death and our salvation. And Jesus found this so valuable. He said that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So gratitude and thanksgiving, these are not just nice feelings. They are some of the most powerful forces that we can experience. And so my, really my one and only point of application is that we should seek to cultivate gratitude and practice thanksgiving. And to cultivate gratitude simply means to try to grow our appreciation for what God has done for us and the good that we see around us. And to practice thanksgiving just means to be intentional about stopping from time to time, naming our blessings, praising God for those things. And I do have three ways I think that people are blessed when they do those things, when they cultivate gratitude and practice thanksgiving. And the first way is that we're blessed because cultivating gratitude, practicing thanksgiving, these draw us closer to God. Simply that. It's my personal theory, I guess, that <clears throat> for most people, worshiping and seeking the presence of God, it's not something that most people do very easily or very naturally all on their own. It's not true for everybody. There are some people who seem to have that gift of just naturally wanting that all the time, but a lot of Christians would not sing all that many praises or engage in nearly as much regular prayer or be exposed to nearly as much Bible reading and teaching if it weren't for the church community that they're part of. Church services do those things, spiritual friendships and small groups and general encouragement and the flow of life in Christian community contributes to that. That's why we think these things are important. But there are two things that do cause people to seek God all on their own, without any prompting or encouragement or help. And those two things are gratitude and desperation. Right? These are the things that will drive us to our knees in prayer without any prompting from anybody else. And we know that desperation does it, because when someone's life hangs in the balance, or when you've, you've made a catastrophic mistake and you don't know what to do, or when the course of your life could be radically changed by something that is way beyond your control, we generally don't need to be told to pray. And gratitude is the other side of that coin, because we can be overwhelmed with gratitude to God if he responds to our desperate prayer and rescues us, or if he helps our loved one who's in peril, or if he gets us through whatever it was that we were facing, like Mary and, and Martha after Jesus resurrected their brother, Anybody who knows that God has given them something that they could not possibly have gained for themselves or they could not possibly have survived on their own, they don't need to be nagged to praise God. 
And that's true and often very powerful as a witness to others. But we shouldn't need for things to get quite so extreme to cultivate gratitude. To draw nearer to God, we practice thanksgiving, remembering the good that God has done for us in our lives up to this point, looking around at all that we have, all the things that we need, all the people who we have around us, recognizing where all that comes from. And so we let gratitude guide you into God's presence, which is a much more meaningful path than obligation or habit. So that's, that's the first, that gratitude and thanksgiving, they draw us into God's presence. The second thing is that practicing thanksgiving, cultivating gratitude, these give us a perspective on life that's simply healthier and happier. That's the, the bottom line. Because each day, we get opportunities to respond to what happens to us. And we can either let gratitude or selfishness determine our response. To a certain extent, we get to make a lot of choices about how we react to what happens to us. We don't get to choose what happens a lot of the time, but we do get to choose our response. And there are days when you know, my kids are running around the house yelling and I look at the mess and I think about just how much cleanup is going to be required once they finally go to sleep and how many dishes still have to be cleaned and how many lunches still have to be made. And, you know, before I can finally wrap up my day, which I'd like to do early because, you know, somebody's going to have me up in the middle of the night and somebody else is going to be up early. And all of that can start to, you know, inflame my sense of entitlement from time to time, right? Why me? Why is this so hard? Will I ever get to do something I like in my life again? Or will I just wash dishes and fold laundry and mediate fights about who gets this toy or that color cup until I die? You know? And I don't blame any parent for feeling that way from time to time. But letting that be the default attitude is, of course, a recipe for misery. Not just for me or for you, but for anyone around us as well. And so when I'm at my best, I can take in the exact same scene and recognize the incredible good fortune of having three happy and healthy children, a gift of unimaginable value that's somehow been entrusted to me of all people. And they're running around a safe and warm house. They're eating all those snacks they keep asking for from a well-stocked fridge. They're wearing clothes that you know, were handed down from our network of friends. And they have a full slate of grandparents who adore them and help out a lot with them. I am an incredibly rich man. And I'm both deeply grateful for what I've been given and desperate to do this as well as I can. And you can look at the same scene and you can easily choose either perspective. And this choice of outlook changes the way you interact with the people around you. It changes the satisfaction you experience in your life. Maybe one other everyday example. Because <clears throat> I had a moment just last week where gratitude kind of saved me a little bit. Because uh, I was you know, kind of tiredly wrapping things up for bed. Uh, but before I could escape to the bedroom at Amy had a discussion about some things that were coming up in our life that was, uh, you know, seemed like a good time for that. There were some household details, there were some things to be addressed, there were some decisions to be made. And, you know, there was this kind of stirring of annoyance within me at this point, because it had been a long day, and I had worked very hard, and I had not agreed on a midnight planning session. And so that could have led to me being kind of snappy or complaining or having the conversation but then secretly regretting or resenting it the whole time going later and going to bed cranky. But then I remembered that I am fortunate to have a partner who is good at keeping track of these details, good at anticipating needs and getting ahead of problems in ways that regularly bless me and our whole family in different ways. 
And because of that, because of a, just a moment of thanksgiving, I was able to put on my big boy pants and engage in this conversation. And, you know, thank you, Jesus, for that. Whatever stage of life you're in, you have people and circumstances that you can be thankful for. And you have struggles and you have disappointments that you can dwell on. And so we have that question in our response. Will we live in hope because of gratitude to God or live in bitterness because of that, all those things that we never got or all those things that we have lost along life's journey? One forms you into a very different person than the other. Right, the third thing that's good about cultivating gratitude and practicing thanksgiving is that it allows us to enjoy our blessings and the beautiful moments of our lives in an uncertain and troubled world. See, when I reflect on today's passage, I think about Jesus and how preoccupied I would have been in his place at that dinner. Right? I mean, if I had all that on my mind about what was likely to happen to me next, I don't even know if I would be paying attention to what anyone else said or appreciating anything going on around me probably be pretty short and dismissive of those people. But Jesus was able, it seems, to embrace and appreciate this gift of anointing. He found beauty and comfort in it. He was able to express his own gratitude to the person who offered it to him. And there's a lesson there for us in our anxious world. In the midst of our 24-7 awareness of war and natural disasters and economic uncertainty and crime and whatever else uh, is out there that can cause people to struggle to find joy in the moment or hope for the future. But when we stop and are thankful for what we do have and the God who provides it to us, well, that builds our trust and it strengthens our hope for what comes next. And I find that one of the unfortunate consequences of a greater awareness of certain historical and racial injustices is that there's a strange pressure not to celebrate or appreciate certain things today, right? There are some voices in our culture who would say, never be happy about what you have because it all came at somebody else's expense, right? Don't appreciate the country where you live because it's done too many bad things. You know, don't celebrate Thanksgiving Day, certainly. I mean, think about the underlining colonialism and the, the brutal oppression inflicted upon turkeys and, and all of these things. And look, I think pursuing justice, especially you know, including for the past sins of nations and institutions is good and biblical. And I've said that from up here plenty of times. But that doesn't mean we don't give thanks for the good around us or be moved to gratitude in that moment. <clears throat> the poor will always be with you meant that while the ongoing responsibility to care for the least of these and seek justice for them and help them, that still remained. But the people gathered around Jesus should also be free to appreciate a moment of beauty and gratitude to him, and so should we. Actually, this echoes an earlier incident where there were some Pharisees complaining that Jesus' disciples were just too darn happy. Right? They ate and they drank and they laughed and they did not solemnly fast enough the way the disciples of the Pharisees did. And Jesus said, look, there will be a time of mourning. But his disciples shouldn't be chastised for enjoying themselves in Jesus' presence, just as Jesus defended the woman who gave all that she had in today's passage against those people ganging up on her for what seemed like an excessive gift. Let's be grateful for those moments, those moments large and small that show us the good in our lives, that allow us to share love with those around us and remind us that God has blessed us. You know, it was 
only in my preaching preparations this week that I learned the story of Canada's very first Thanksgiving service. So I think it might be worth an extra minute or two to tell you about that after what we've just worked through. And it, it comes from 1579, if you can believe it, well over 400 years ago, when Martin Frobisher sent off from England with uh, a fleet of 15 ships. And he was making his third trip to Baffin Island, where this time he was hoping to start a small settlement. But not one thing went right on this journey at first. One of his ships was lost early on due to ice. That ship had a lot of the building materials for the settlement on it. And then the expedition was hit by freak storms. They were blocked by ice. They became scattered. Many of the ships lost contact with the others. And it looked like the mission might be a total disaster. But eventually, the remaining 14 ships did all find their way to what we now call Frobisher Bay. And when the last ship rejoined the fleet, there was a man appointed by the English crown to be the minister for the expedition. And he gathered all the people together. And he gave them communion. And he preached a sermon encouraging them to be thankful to God for their strange and miraculous deliverance in those so dangerous places, he said. And I have to wonder how many sailors and officers thought that was the best use of their time at that moment. I mean, imagine, I have to imagine there were an awful lot of repairs to make and supplies to inventory and plans to be discussed about what should happen next. But instead they gathered to thank God for bringing them that far. There was a moment there to be seized and infused with meaning before moving on to the next thing. It was worth taking that time to cultivate gratitude and practice thanksgiving. Because these things feed our souls and shape our character and grow our hope and trust, even when things don't go according to our plans or preferences. And that gratitude, who knows, that may even well up into something extravagant. Because that happens. Instead of giving an appropriate amount of our time and resources and devotion, gratitude can sometimes move followers of Jesus to offer something that seems excessive if you don't believe that it's actually tiny as a response to all that God has done to you, for you. I think extravagance is relative, really. I mean, someone with millions of dollars can do something that appears much more dramatic. They can buy a building, they can endow an institution, they can repay people's debts. But extravagance can also be the gift of time and expertise that someone doesn't really have because they're in high demand, but they, they share it to their uh, church or a good cause. It can be a gift to those in need by someone who's only a little bit better off. It can be the forgiveness of someone for something that's not really reasonable to forgive. It can be responding to someone's hurt or loss with the unceasing care and support that goes far beyond what anyone expects. And sometimes over the years, I felt like it's my job as a pastor to give dutiful people permission to not do things, especially when it seems like those would not be life-giving or healthy things for them to do. But maybe I should also, a little more often, say that, you know, sometimes God does not cause us, call us to be reasonable about everything. <laughs> sometimes it is beautiful to be unreasonable about what we offer, what we give, what we endure, and what we hope for. Because we know what Jesus gave for us. And what can we do in response to that? That is too much. What will be told in memory of you when people reflect on what Jesus meant to you? The way that we're asked to remember this woman and all that she did because of what Jesus meant to her. Will there be a story to tell about how we expressed our thankfulness to God in this life in some unreasonable way?